0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. All right, let's get to work. Y'all ready to study your Bibles? Yeah. All right, great. Me too. Uh, Why don't you meet me in Philippians chapter 2? And as you get there, I want to sort of frame up our time. Together. Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church uh, who through the book of Acts we see planted. Acts, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, these, these are church planting. Books. The the former showing us the planting of these churches and the latter were letters from Paul to these young church plants, encouraging them, equipping them, uh, and, and calling them to be imitators of Christ in the environments they exist in. The book of Philippians calls the church to closer, deeper fellowship with one another, Because of the fellowship they have in Christ. And because they have both fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with each other, Paul makes clear in every chapter of Philippians that this produces fruit. Or or certain qualities of one character is formed. You understand what I'm saying? In both the fellowship we have with God. And the fellowship we have with each other, the spirit of God curates and cultivates character. And the book of Philippians emphasizes in its overarching narrative, one specifically, one character trait specifically, one I find immensely important to not just our walk with God, but to our testimony, to those who don't know him, joy, eternal, unshakable Happiness in God. Philippians is therefore a very profound and eloquently written letter. If you ever met a Christian before, they probably have a top five verse in Philippians. No? Uh, Maybe it's, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Maybe it's, in your relationships with one another, have the mind of Christ. Maybe it's don't be anxious for anything, but be prayerful for everything. Maybe it's he who began a good work in you shall bring it on to completion. I could go on and on. Some of you are probably like, he didn't even say mine. But the the point is, Philippians is filled with such rich and deep content. It is all over. Seemingly, every other verse is highlightable or like life verse worthy in its construction of the letter lends itself to that. Paul opens the letter with heart-stirring thanksgiving and prayer. And then he goes on to Christ-centered vision and ambition, then this beautiful, exhortation to live lives worthy of the gospel. Then comes a plea for unity, then a majestic hymn of Christ's humility, then a call to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by doing nothing without complaining or grumbling. Then chapters three and four carry the, the same weight in its composition of words. But in between these two paramount movements of the book, chapter one and two, and chapters 3 and 4, between those two movements of the letter, we find this little section of verses which contain a travel itinerary. Exciting stuff. That's my sarcasm speaking. I love what one commentator says in their notes on this portion of Philippians that we're about to read. He says, nobody's favorite verses of Philippians are here in this part of the book. And that's what I chose to preach to you this morning. So much greatness exists throughout the whole book that in this little travel log, it's easily forgettable. In fact, before I wrote this sermon, I was looking through my notes and I had sermons ready for every other part of the book. But this, it's interesting, though, that we would find travel plans in the middle of a book. You've read read your Bible before. This is uncommon. Paul either doesn't talk about it at all, or he saves it for the end of the book like Colossians, right? Colossians, then the Colossians, I plan to go to you, right? You you maybe think of 2 Corinthians, but other than that, nobody talks about their travel plans. But since Paul was not known to do anything just because, I think these words of Paul are very important and should cause us to pause and consider just why He is saying what he is saying. and So I want to answer a few questions this morning. What is the purpose of the plans here? Why is it important to send these two young men to Philippi? And what can we today learn from these men? And so I want to tag our time in this text. Send the best. Send the best. As we see Paul inform the church at Philippi that he is sending his best partners in ministry to go be model servants and blessings to the church For their joy in the Lord. I have just a few brief observations and then I'll be in my seat. But if you could, if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear what thus say of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 19. God's word reads, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? God, we come to your house to be with you and your people May your glory be revealed in the proclamation of your word. May your son be seen as more beautiful in the hearing of your word. May your bride, we, the church, be edified in the digestion of your word. And Father, would you gift me, with, uh, gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe this is you, maybe it ain't. It's definitely me. But when reading the news or watching it on TV or maybe seeing some current events on your social media thread, we're left asking the question, where are all the good people in the world? Are there any good people left? Or are we just all rotten to the core. In the last month, I read about a shootout here in Orlando that killed a reporter, a mother and a daughter in her own home. A shootout that happened on the very street I grew up on in South Kissimmee that killed one and injured two others. The other day I was scrolling through, I don't remember what app I was on, I saw a video of a homeless man sitting on the corner, minding his own business, and another man just walks up to him and Gets him in the back of the head. And what angered me, like, even more, I was already enraged, but what angered me more is, like, nobody did anything. Everybody just kind of pulled their phones out. Nobody screamed, nobody yelled, nobody ran, nobody did nothing. They just pulled their phone out, watched the whole thing happen. But we watch things like this, so we hear things like this, and we're left wondering to ourselves, are there any good people left? And what happens, church, is we build a kind of guardedness, a hesitancy towards anyone we don't know. Even in the church, we built up this natural skepticism toward people. We hear, even in the church, constantly of abuse of all kinds, of manipulation and self-preservation. Even in the church, we see, or we could see, that loving your neighbor, mutual concern are just concepts in the pages of the ancient book you hold in your hand or app on your phone. But is that what the Christian is supposed to be? Is that what the church is supposed to emulate or reflect? Is the gospel just an outline of salvation Or does it call us to more? Does it actually transform the person into a radically different lifestyle? Must everybody harden his or own heart in order to protect themselves? Are things like sacrifice and service ancient character traits that no longer fit into our modern society? Can I argue, family, that categorically times haven't changed all that much? Mutual concern, sacrifice, service to others were not popular characteristics in the world or in the church in Paul's day either. In fact, Paul writes this little travel log, this itinerary of sorts in the middle of this letter with a number of purposes at play. And I want to submit to you, family, that one of these purposes is, to, is the call to live ordinary Christian lives. This itinerary and the characters in it model to us ordinary Christianity. Chapter 2, in its wholeness, is a picture, mostly instructive in its nature, but a picture of a life transformed by the gospel. Go with me to verse 1. Verses 1 through 11 give us a description of a person whose entire life, mind, will, emotions, have been captivated by Christ. And then what Paul does is he gives us Christ as the image, the subject of our examination. Complete my joy. In this description, we see mutual concern, humility, sacrifice, and service in the person of Jesus. Paul is saying, God has given us his best in his son. The perfect picture of personhood. In Jesus, we find humanity complete. Paul says, the description of a person who has been transformed by the gospel, is Christ. Look to him. Well, you feel that tension, right? You feel that tension right now. How how could I live like him? How could I, full of sin, marred by sin, be like he who knew no sin? Impossible. Paul continues, probably knowing that the church is feeling these same things. So in verse 12 through 18, he gives us not the description of a life transformed, but the dynamics or the heart dispositions that stimulate growth in the transformed life. In other words, what Paul does is he gives us the dynamics and then he uses himself as the subject of examination for the church. Look at verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I that is Paul may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so What Paul says is fine. If Jesus is too much of an impossibility for you to find encouragement, then look to me. If I can do it, you can do it. But that, you know what I mean? It feels impossible. Like none of us are apostles with four PhDs. Not all of us have the social, racial, academic, cultural, moral upbringing that Paul has that he describes in chapter three. Some of us might have one or two of those things, but we ain't got the lot. None of us have the supernatural power found in Paul. That's a different sermon. I'd love to preach that one day. None of us have the level of anointing to pray and sing until literal walls crumble. You know what I'm saying? to cast out demons and to heal people, to hug a dead man until God makes him alive and hugs him back. None of us don't have that. just not us. And seemingly not Philippi. See, Paul had every intention to be with this church in person. That, That was his intention. To actually be an example to them in real life. But he was unable to because he was imprisoned in Rome. So Paul says, I can't make it yet, but I have something just as good. I have my best men who are still just men at best. He introduces us to two brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These brothers are neither the Messiah or great miracle workers. As Warren Wiersbe describes them, they were two ordinary men. Two ordinary men. But by speaking about these two men, Paul moves the leather from instructions and imperatives to living illustrations. In other words, Paul now gives us two examples of what he's been teaching about in the previous two chapters. Let's look at them closely. Look at Timothy. For you note takers, there's three points with Timothy. Timothy was trained, transformed, and treasured. Timothy is an interesting guy. It looks like the faith came to him from the matriarchs in his family. In, the, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul mentions his mother and his grandmother as influential figures. And Paul didn't add Timothy to the team. Once he was immediately saved as a boy, Paul left him to become part of his home churches. That's where Timothy matured and grew in the faith in his church fellowship in Derb and Lystra. That's where he grew up and learned to serve the Lord. When Paul came back a few years later to visit these churches, these churches spoke so well of Timothy. Paul, you got got to get with this, brother. He's been good. He's been good. And so that's when Paul took him under his care. In other words, Timothy's training didn't begin when he started walking side by side with Paul. It happened in his church. Nevertheless, he did walk with Paul. Even though Timothy was son to a Jewish mother and Gentile father, we see here Paul say, He served the church alongside me, so he's like a son to me. I love that. Look around the room. Don't look at me. Look around the room. Who are your spiritual sons and daughters? Or well, if you don't see yourself the maternal or paternal figure, who are your big brothers and big sisters in the faith? Let me tell you that on the day my boys are baptized at our home church, there will be at least three young men who could hold their head proud at that work because they've played with my children. They've talked with my children. They've read their catechisms to them. They've tucked them into bed and they've prayed over them while they slept spiritual sons in the making for you younger men and you younger women the same charge goes to you who are your spiritual big brothers and sisters spiritual fathers and mothers look around the room find them pursue them sit in their lives sit in their lives when their house is a mess when they're running errands when they're doing chores sit with them when they're mad with their kids and when they're playing with them too Family, know this, and you probably won't like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Busyness is not an excuse to not disciple or be discipled. Certainly things in your life will minimize the intensity. But you must, not optional, must, child of God, must be discipled and discipling. Paul says, Timothy did the work with me. I didn't do the work, and then when I had time, when and found Timothy, no, 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 I brought him to the grind with me. I did the work with him. I brought him in. You see what I'm saying? Timothy was not a weekend project for Paul. He was a lifelong project. I'm going to teach you how to make these tents. I'm going to teach you how to travel. I'm going to teach you how to rough it out. I'm going to teach you how to be a man. I'm going to teach you how to be a child of God. Don't forsake the gift, family. That is modeling the mind of Christ, modeling the life of Christ to the younger generations, young men and young women. Find yourself a mother or a sister, a father or a brother. I want you to think about this. God began a good work in Paul and Timothy's relationship that cultivated verse 20. Think about this. The greatest book ever constructed, the living, breathing, infallible word of God tells us what Paul says about Timothy. Verse 20, for I have no one like him. Who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare? The language here assumes both a spiritual and physical well-being at play. Paul says, everybody else, they care about themselves. But Timothy, that man really cares about your needs, spiritual and physical, deeply. In Timothy's training, we see that he was also experiencing transformation. He possessed a heart that had a Christ-like view of people transformed. He naturally cared for people. He was concerned about their needs. This is a mark of a life transformed by the gospel. He was not interested in the winning friends and influencing people's school of thought. He possessed a genuine interest in the physical and spiritual welfare of others. Family, can I challenge you here? That in this description of a person, if sanctification is true, and we know it is, this description should describe you too. When you are saved by grace, you are transformed. And that transformation is not into some highly productive, high capacity, massively influential leader type. No, you are transformed day by day into the whole image of Jesus. Burdened for what Christ is burdened for, living as Christ lived, thinking as Christ thought, feeling as Christ felt. And when Jesus was here on this world, never did he save a soul without meeting a physical need. The blind man. The leper, Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood, the Gentile daughter, on and on and on. We see not only Jesus meeting a salvific need, but a physical need as well. James, the brother of Jesus, writes a whole book dedicated to this premise. He says, if you are transformed, truly transformed by the gospel, don't tell the person freezing they need grace until after you've made them warm. This is gospel transformation, lives who care about the spiritual and physical need of others. If we are a people who stand on the side of life, then the flourishing of humanity, the upholding of all human dignity, the preservation of the Imago Dei on anybody should be our agenda always from the womb to the tomb. Notice this, Paul is in Rome. He has anxiety about the church in Philippi, so he wanted to send someone on his behalf to convey his concern and to get the facts, but nobody wanted to go. We know there's a church in Rome. He wrote his best book to them. Did he not? Romans, the book of Romans. I just want to make sure y'all read your Bible. Y'all looked at me like, which book is that? All right, cool. I appreciate you. You got to tell me, though. You know what I mean? We know it was a bigger church, too. The end of the book of Romans, Paul names 26 people in chapter 16, 26 people who served faithfully. That's bigger than New City's core group right now. And none of them wanted to take the trip to Philippi. None of them. Is that us, family? Are we so engrossed with our own dealings, our own matters, that the mission of God or the matters of another are too much a cost for us? God, give us ears to hear this this morning. Do we have a natural concern that's bent inwardly, directed at ourselves, or a natural concern that's bent outwardly toward others? Nobody in the church at Rome went. But Timothy goes. Look at the contrast of these two verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Flip a page over chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Family, in a very real sense, all of us live. Either in verse 21 of chapter 1 or verse 21 of chapter 2. And Timothy's example shows us that the transformed life is found in the 21st verse of chapter 1. For me to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. He was trained. He was transformed. And last, he was treasured. This might not be what you think it is. I'm going to let you know right now. God rewarded Timothy for his sacrifice and his service and his faithfulness to the churches. Rewarded him. Okay. Timothy was a good and faithful servant to be sure family. Life wasn't always easy for Timothy. And people surely were difficult. We read 2 Corinthians, right? But even still, he found genuine joy in serving others and caring for people. Because Timothy was faithful with a few things. God rewarded him with a many great things. Can I tell you what that reward looked like? He was rewarded to go to Philippi in Paul's place. See, Paul wants to go to Philippi. And can't send, he can't go, so he sends Timothy to go in his place. Could there be no greater honor than to go before your big brother and do work on his behalf? Could there be no greater honor, no greater reward, no greater treasure than to be given more missional clarity? And this is just a foreshadow. Of a greater reward to come, a greater treasure coming later. God's greatest reward to Timothy was that when Paul went home, he passed the baton to him. That Paul, when he was gone, finished the race of life right before he went past that thing and said, Timothy, you take it and go now. That was Timothy's greatest reward. What an honor, is it not? What an honor, and we see this in Paul's letter to Timothy. I will not be here much longer, so you take it and go. Timothy was treasured by both God and the people around him. Paul speaks of another man, where Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and Timothy was half Hebrew, half Gentile. This man, Epaphroditus, was full Gentile, as far as we know. He was a member of the Philippian church. He risked his own life, his own health, to carry the church's missionary offering to the imprisoned Paul all the way in Rome. Mm. Epaphroditus' name means charming. And is that not a charming Christian? Three points here. He was balanced, burdened, and blessed. Even though these verses on Epaphroditus are short and seemingly surface in language, that's not truly the case. Paul says he is my brother, companion and labor and a fellow soldier. Our oh, family. This is all language that reflects language he used in chapter one. Look at chapter one. My brother is parallel to chapter one, verse five, the fellowship of the gospel. My companion in labor is parallel to chapter one, verse 12, the furthering of the gospel. My fellow soldier is parallel to chapter one, verse 27, the faith of the gospel. This is balance. See, oftentimes we as a church put so much emphasis on the fellowship of the gospel, the community, the family aspect of what we have together, that we forget the furtherance or the defending of the faith. No, no, no. This brother had it all. Others, you know, might be so consumed with defending the faith of the gospel that they forget they're also to have fellowship with the people they're defending against. Epaphroditus did not fall into either of these traps. He was like Nehemiah, who built the walls of Jerusalem with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. You know, a little cement spatula. I just found that out when I was studying this. I didn't know what trowel meant. I wanted to flex that a little bit. Because you can't do battle with a trowel and you can't build with a sword. You need both to accomplish the work of the kingdom. Let, let, me, let me try it this way. One day, I believe this story originates in Canada. There was a group of Christians who would meet in a public place. And in this place, they would hold up a sign that said, Jesus only. That's how they knew where they were going to meet, because the sign outside the door, they taped it, said Jesus only. One of their pastors had told these brothers just how one-sided they had become, just how unbalanced they had been, only caring for the fellowship and not really the advancement of the gospel or defending it against its enemies. And so that's what they did. Outside their meeting place, they had this sign, Jesus only. One day, a wind came, and the wind blew hard on the door, and it tore the sign. And the sign said, us only. Is that us, family? Is that us? Excluding the graces of the gospel living to those outside of us? We must have balance. Fellowship, furtherance, defending the faith. Not only was Epaphroditus balanced, he was burdened. Like his brother Timothy, Epaphroditus was concerned for the welfare of others. First off, he was concerned for Paul, opting to be the church's vehicle by which Paul would receive their support and mission. How many of us would go out of our way, not for a road trip, not for the sights, but because there's a Christian in prison unjustly and we want to make sure the brothers care for him? This trip from Philippi to Rome wasn't an easy trip. It was a dangerous journey on foot. Carrying the church's offering, he had to guard it with his life. It wasn't no direct deposit. You gotta directly walk to that joint. <laughs> Family, we need more, more from our own body, more who will take the dangerous and unsafe trip into communities, blocks, neighborhoods, spaces countries where it is not safe to do kingdom work and then we have to support them and continue to support them. There is an urgency in the life of Epaphroditus I think we need to adopt. Don't read this and go, all right, I'm going to put this on my spiritual checklist. I'm going to go out one day and evangelize. No, when we read Epaphroditus' life and how Paul speaks of him, there is a compelling that Paul is doing to say, this brother risked it all for the kingdom. Epaphroditus lived in chapter 1, verse 21. To live is Christ die is gain. 2.26 says that Epaphroditus has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Distressed. Other translations say full of heaviness. But in the Greek, this is the same expression used for Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. This man, Epaphroditus, was so like Christ. He knew the meaning of sacrifice and service and he lived it. Thoroughly, family, this is ordinary Christianity. Ordinary Christianity. Lastly, he was blessed. Family, it would be a great tragedy if you live this life without being a blessing to somebody else. Our brother Epaphroditus was a blessing to Paul. He stood with him in his prison experience and did not permit even his own sickness to hinder his service. But he was also a blessing to his own church. Paul tells the church of Philippi, honor this brother for his character, his disposition, his burden, his balance requires it. Yes, Christ ultimately gets all the glory in Epaphroditus's work, but there is nothing prideful or boastful in receiving honor. And that's what we see in Paul's words here. Not only was Epaphroditus a blessing to Paul and a blessing to his church, he is a blessing to us. Epaphroditus proves to us that the joyful life is the life of sacrifice and service. That true joyful living is found in the mind that has submitted to Christ. Epaphroditus is a blessing to us because he points us to Jesus. I'm going to wrap this thing up. These men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, were Paul's best but they were undeniably ordinary. That's who Paul sent to love the church, to serve the church, to be an example in the church and model to us a life transformed by the gospel. I want to reiterate something to you, family, that in all that we've just studied from their lives lies the evidence of ordinary Christianity. They are me and they are you, but you and I both know That at the close of these verses and littered throughout this text, there is someone greater than them. No, there is someone greater than them. And it is not Paul but the one who Paul speaks of, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, divinity wrapped like a gift in human skin, the preeminent one, the image of the invisible God, the sustainer of all creation, the offering of the atonement, the lion and the lamb. He is the one who when God needed to send someone in our place, he sent his best. See, Paul sent his best to the church and his best was ordinary, but God sends his best for us in Christ. It was he who was trained in the words of the prophets and law as a child. He who was transformed himself on the mountaintop before his disciples to show his divinity to them. He who was treasured before God the Father as his son with whom he is well pleased. He who is balanced in every way. He is a friend of sinners, a healer of the sick, dwelling among men and children, who is both revolutionary and Tradition keeper, he who was burdened with the full force of sin on the cross, bearing your sin in mind, bearing the wrath of God in our place, pierced for our transgressions, nailed for our iniquities, all oh, and he's blessed. Sin could not crush him, death could not stop him, and right now he is sitting in the highest seat of heaven, to the right of the glory of the Father, waiting to come back and bless us with the new city, the new Jerusalem, where we'll dwell with him for all our days tossing praises as his feet that's who God sent his best to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a most gruesome death that we deserve for our sins, buried him in wrappings of cloth and spices and sealed him in the tomb for three days, but on that Sunday morning, the best man resurrected not in his divinity so that the haters can say he cheated no, 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 he did it bodily in his humanity so that you can see for yourself like Mary Mary and Salome, ain't nobody in there anymore, that is the gospel that you have a greater man who in service to his father humbled himself to leave heaven and become poor and immigrant a laborer and he sacrificed himself for you to the point of death and genuinely cares for your spiritual and physical welfare and just to prove he's the real deal he gives you the ghost of the godhead God the Holy Spirit to give you salvation and sanctify you to eternity and make you diligent with your time and the work of your hands to provide not just for yourself but for others as well God sent his best for you to Christ be all the glory praise and honor would you pray with me we hope you enjoyed today's message if it was a blessing to you please consider visiting our website outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support if you are ever in the Orlando area we would love to serve and worship with you have a wonderful week